It's February 18, and this is News of Prison Simple. My name is Sean, and with me as always is Boris. Hello! Top story today, Night Dive Studios CEO Stephen Kick has announced that the System Shock remake, a Kickstarter project that amassed nearly $1.5 million, has been put on indefinite hiatus. Kick claims that the development team had begun drifting away from the original goal of remaking the game to creating something, quote, completely new, uh, thereby straying from both the core concepts and the existing budget. He also insists that this hiatus does not represent the end of the project and that System Shock will meet its campaign promises at some unspecified point in the future. So wait, if they're going to a new direction, will it meet? the the promises like will they do the remake and then another game or is this going to be another game because then i wouldn't say it will meet the campaign promises because we will promise the remake not that i care that much technically like i'd play i'd play a new game i'm not a shock fan not that i'm against shock i would just never had the opportunity to get deep into those series both of them i played Bioshock Infinite, that's it. I haven't played System Shock 1 and 2. I haven't played Bioshock 1 and 2, so, like, I really have no connection to any Shock. And we got Prey, which is technically System Shock 3. Ooh, I don't know if I'd go that far. Well, you know that it was supposed to be that. Like, yeah, it, like but... Prey is much more a Shock game than a Prey game. They just didn't get the license, so they, they had the license for Prey, so they called it Prey, but it's a Shock game. I mean, this has always kind of been my problem with the Bioshock games as well, which is that if Terry Brosius isn't there as Shodan, that's like having a Portal game without GLaDOS, you know, I don't have time for that. But um, this actually, well, first of all, the hiatus would seem to suggest that this is a matter of course correction rather than creating an additional new game. Because that would seem to suggest that they are getting rid of all the stuff that they did wrong and starting you know, trying to get back on track because they are. So that does seem to be the priority. But I had a different question for you. You know, we recently had an entire episode dedicated to Kickstarter successes and failures. And this situation raised a particular question for me that I'd like to bounce off you, Boris, and see what you think about it. Yeah. It has to do with learning curves, right? Night Dive's statement is... Probably abundantly familiar to crowdfunders. We have heard yeah. this line yeah. about, you know, uh, overambitious planning, incorrect budgeting, Kickstarter campaigns getting in trouble. This is not the first time, not the 10th time, not the 50th time. Yeah. And not the, the thing, last time, I think. Not in the least. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? This campaign, the System Shock campaign, ran in 2016. This is a point in time where there had already been quite a few ambitious, high-profile failures in crowdfunding. So the question that I'd like to pose is, why are developers and publishers still struggling with crowdfunding models when you have these very expensive, very public lessons as to how not to do things? Because I think that every child is special in their own way. Making games is hella complicated. And and promising yourself, not even talking about fans, promising yourself as a developer things mm. is really easy. Like, when you start working on a game, 
you really believe you're capable of a lot of stuff, and this yes. is a remake. Just like we make an engine, and then we and then we recreate all the stuff that's already existing, only in a modern engine. So it's much better. How difficult could it be? We just need money and time, right? Um, but it's never that easy. Here's the thing. Here's a success story that did have a lot of uh, buzz around it. Though it yeah. is a success story, it just shows how things can be complex. Um, there was recently the Crash Bandicoot remake, right? And this was a remake like a fully rebuilt game. Just like the, the new System Shock is supposed to be. Like, they rebuilt uh, Crash Bandicoot from ground up. It's not a reskin, uh, it's not like mm-hmm. new textures. It's a new game. Uh, but a complete, like, frame-to-frame remake of the original. Now, what players noticed, um, that the game is extremely, extremely difficult. And the studio that did the remake, they kept insisting that you just don't remember the original game was actually extremely difficult. Which is true. But then, eventually, players did notice something, which later the studio confirmed. Uh, in the original game, the point where Crash was landing, like his, his bottom, was flat. And here, it's cone-like. Which means that in the original Crash, if you'd land on the edge of, of a platform, you'd land on it. And in the new one, you slide off it. Because y- your bottom is conical. You have actually a much smaller surface to land. And you just, you, you can see, like, how, like, the model almost unnaturally, like, slides off mm-hmm. of the corner in this very bizarre way. Um, so the game is objectively more, more difficult. You have less, uh, less, like, you need to be much more uh, agile with the way and precise with the way you land on platforms. A, a near landing is not a landing, and it used to be. Mm-hmm. So that's just a tiny, tiny um, example of something that like did go wrong, but how many other things didn't, and the game is still a success. Now imagine Night Dive rebuilding from scratch... Like, not rebuilding, building a new engine for a game that came out in, like, what, 80, 80 what? You, you'll know better, I think. I don't recall exactly, but, um, yeah, okay, yeah, but, I see but, what you're saying. I, I'm sure they ran into a shit ton of things, like, because they have a lot of very easy solutions for very big problems back then, they suddenly create new problems. But I don't think that that's connected to the difficulties that they're having here, because at least according to their statement, their problem hasn't been one of technical solutions to problems or engine difficulty or anything that could be explained in that way. Yeah, they, they they're just, talking about. They just found out that they're making a different game by accident. Right. The the way because... that they describe it is basically that the development team went off the rails and started adding new things and new things and new things and new things until it didn't even resemble System Shock anymore. That speaks to me of a of a different kind of problem that happened specifically to Kickstarters. Like Crash Bandicoot wasn't a Kickstarter project, was it? Is it is it a no, but is is what you're describing a Kickstarter it, problem? It, that That's happens. Very, name one Kickstarter that that had the very same problem. Anything like, that doesn't this meet... is a very unique problem. No, no, no. Anything that doesn't meet stretch goals. No. 
How often have you heard... No, but this is not about stretch goals. This is about the fact that you're remaking an existing no. game. And sure, why not? You're a creative person. You add in some stuff and suddenly you lose control The specific of elements like, of the remake... This is completely no, the unique. specific elements of like it being a remake, yes. But in terms of Kickstarter projects that you always get that line of we were too ambitious and we wanted to go too far. This Is this not the story of Double Fine? Right? Have we not heard yeah. this line of, you know, we put too many things in the game and we had to cut a whole bunch of stuff out because it wasn't working out with the budget? Th- these are things that have happened. Yes, obviously the fact that Night Dive was remaking a game as opposed to starting from scratch adds a wrinkle or two. But that core issue of we lost the the goalposts, you know, like we, we got lost in the forest. This seems to happen a lot. Yeah, but... But again, this situation is unique. This is why I'm saying, like, comparing it to other... Yeah, you could learn from other Kickstarters. You could say, this won't happen to me. But what is this, this that won't happen to me? Like, Double Fine had one problem. Um, God bless uh, Star Citizen. That's a whole pick mm-hmm. of other problems. And then this game is a different problem. Like, from your perspective, as a consumer... You don't get the game on time, right? It looks the same. No, but these are completely no, 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 different no, 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 no. situations. The statement that the CEO gave pointed to a specific issue that had the same problem. What, what did the you know what is Kick's statement saying? He's saying essentially that they had too much money, which is why they were too ambitious, and that is exactly the issue with Double Fine. So according to Kick himself, right? And in fact, the title of this uh, yeah. statement was "Sometimes you need to step back in order to take two steps forward." Ain't that the truth? So. What he says here is that the Kickstarter was, and I quote, tremendously successful with over 2,100 backers, contributing over $1.3 million to the campaign. We put together a development team, began working on the game, but along the way something happened. Maybe we were too successful. Maybe we lost our focus. The vision began to change. That specifically, right, the issue of, uh, here we go, as yeah. our concept grew and as our team changed, so did the scope of what we were doing, and with that, the budget for the game. As the budget grew, we began a long series of conversations with potential publishing partners. Red lights going off left and right, right? He, so he, he's not exclusively pointing to the budget as the sole issue, but this does seem yeah. to be another scenario where they got a lot more money than they were asking for, and consequently things started going wrong. And it seems strange to me that since this is something that, and again, like Double Fine wrote the book on Kickstarter campaigns to begin with, and then had all of those issues, but you would think that that would at least teach some kind of basic skill of if your campaign is like oversaturated with money, if you get like 200 or 250% of what you were asking for, first of all, that probably means that, you know, the, the, what you were asking for was not how much the game cost. Everybody knows that by now, right? That's yeah. obvious. But if you did go so far beyond your goals, there has to be some kind of clearer strategy of dealing with it. Because I don't think that exists yeah. yet. I don't think that there is, that people have yet put together some kind of manual to say, you know, these are the typical problems that happen with crowdfunding games. Here's how you cope with them. And as a result, we're still like in 2018 seeing companies that should have learned a little bit about this process 
stumble into very similar issues. Not exactly the same, but there are some parallels here. Yeah, you know, I I get what you're saying. I think, and that's like pure speculation on my part, but I can't help but feel sympathetic to Night Dive simply because, like, here's how I imagine it. And I'm saying, this is speculation. This is just how I imagine it. But you got the money. You got much more money than you expected. You know that what you expected wasn't, like, enough to make a game, but still, like, it exploded. Like, great, I have a lot of resources. Let's start working. Then you start working, and you're making a product that already exists. You're remaking a game. You have, um, I would say zero is a strong word, but nearly zero creative freedom here. Like, your creative anything is only in the engine. I'm saying only with quotation marks, because that's a huge-ass job to make an engine for a game. But still, like, you're not creating a story, you're not, you're not even creating... They're using you're not Unity. Even making level they're, design. they're using Unreal. I don't think it's that big of a yeah. stretch that they yeah. were working... Exactly. Yeah. So, like, you're just recreating existing levels, existing inventory, existing puzzles, existing story. You're making nothing. And then you think, okay, we are a bunch of creative people, right? We, though, I, I was about to say, we make video games, though most of what Nightdive do is ports. Um, and this is the biggest port of all, I guess. But it's like, we have a lot of budget. Let's find the wiggle room, right? Because this game, that's a game from the 80s. Like, if we're updating the engine, let's update the game. Because gameplay tends to age. I haven't played the first System Shock. I did play the second one a little. And it aged fine, but not that well. And I guess the first one aged worse. So why not try to, like, make it a modern game if we're at it? And clearly, in hindsight, that's been either a a mistake, basically because they weren't uh, qualified to do that. Probably. But I get why they wanted to do that, and then, whoops, it's too late. Suddenly you realized, fuck, um, the unicorn shouldn't be there, and the submachine gun probably not as well. Whoops, this is not System Shock 1 anymore. So, listen, guys, we're taking a hiatus to fix this mess we made because we tried to get creative. I'm sympathetic to that, if indeed this is what happened, because this is what I imagined would happen if you try and remake a game from 80-something in a modern engine for a modern audience. Um, There have been too many successful remakes, specifically of old properties. If you look at Doom, if you look at Wolfenstein, you know, there, there have been enough... But these aren't remakes, these are new but games. But this is exactly what they're doing. These no, are that's not... what they're doing with System Shock, though. They were not going for, like, a, a, a complete, you know, panel-to-panel, wall-to-wall recreation of the original. They were talking about updating... Well, that, the... That's what I figured it's going no, to be. No, originally they were... T- even from the beginning, when they hired uh, Terry Bursius to, you know, record new dialogue for Shodan. It's like, if from the start you're doing that, that means, okay... I mean, look... The original System Shock, you know, has its advantages and it has its, like, pluses as a video game. It's not the most compelling thing in the world. I could very clearly yeah. see a situation... Like, there's a reason everyone remembers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, so, one, 
And they said from the start that, you know, their goal was to remake it, but not to be slavish in its recreation. Doom is probably an act- a pretty accurate estimate of what they thought they were trying to do. You know, something oh, that okay. tells broadly the same kind of story. Um, you know, updated visuals, obviously. Better gameplay, clearly. You know, I doubt very much that they were going to do the same kind of cyberspace that you had in the first game, where it's like traveling through wireframe polygon bullshit. You know, they weren't going to do that. So somewhere along that line, you know, there is still a boundary there between what you can add to a game that is still considered a remake and what starts going beyond it. It's like, let's add uh, a whole other ship instead of the space station. Let's, uh, I don't know, instead of mutants, we're going to have dancing mice, whatever. It could have been anything. You know, they, there are a million yeah. ways that they could have gone outside the framework of what would be recommended for an updated remake, right? Even with the remit of there are some things you can do. Like, the the protagonist of the game doesn't have a name or a personality in the original. If they wanted to add that, I don't think anybody would object, right? In the same way that Doom Guy has more character. Doesn't doesn't say shit, but still, like, you you get him, you know? I think that was that was the ballpark of what they're trying to do and what they're now going on hiatus in order to re-achieve. I just don't know how they got to the point where, like, according to him, according to Kick, he's saying there came a point where they suddenly realized they were not making System Shock anymore. And I'm like, how did you get to that point? You know, but it is what it is. I'll ask you as a writer. Did it ever happen that you started writing a story and then suddenly realized that the story you're writing is not the story you started writing? Yes, but nobody paid me $1.5 million to do it. Okay, but but you can see how a creative person, like a, a, any creation, a game, a book, a movie, it is made when it is made. Like the idea is just an idea. Only the process of making it is what's making it what it is. Like you'll never know what you get until you're sometimes 90% through. You suddenly realize, that, oh shit, that's not what I was planning I'm less at all. open to that so, interpretation when it's a team, I'll be honest. If it were an individual project and only one person were doing it, I'd be like, yes, in the absence of feedback, in the absence of like communication and getting input on what's going on, I can see how that would happen. When it's 20, 30, 50 people working in concert on this thing, and the fact that nobody is like, um, I don't think Shodan had boobs. Yeah, I think the main problem is that, again, it's simply, uh, they're not qualified for it. They, they don't have the, uh, the experience. They were making ports. They were making amazing ports. For the first time, they got creative freedom and they're making rookie mistakes. Like, this is a mistake that, um, I think is mostly acceptable for an indie developer. Uh, but this is a mistake that you do, like, when you need to answer to your publishers, it's a shame. When you need to answer to like 20,000 people, you and myself, I don't know if you, myself included, though, I don't care. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, listen, I'm not burning, it, it, it I'm not burning any tires over this, right? The game comes out, it doesn't come out, whatever. But it just, the, the, the issue for me is like, if the crowdfunding process in some way contributed to this, sort of gradual drift away from their objectives, 
people basically need to learn more because it's also the same language that keeps popping up again and again with these developers. We got too much of this. We did too much of this. It's like, guys, if this happens often enough before you even start on the Kickstarter, you know, open your eyes. Look at where other people have failed. Yeah, I think I think it'll keep happening. I think I think again every every problem is individual. Like eventually uh it does seem like you see the similarities and they are there, but uh each and every one of those have reached this situation through their own process. Uh like if we compare this to double fine a double fine, like they told you from the start that they're shifting uh, to a bigger engine. Like it didn't happen accidentally. They made a mistake. They thought that the four millions they gathered were enough. They weren't, uh, but it seemed that they should be. So they made uh, like a, a mistake right from the start. Nightdive apparently accidentally start realize they're making a different game like midway if not more than midway through the process uh, which is like a different situation and um, which uh, yeah we had star citizen as an example which is like he's just a megalomaniac there's nothing <laughs> to here. Uh, it's it's simple he knows exactly what he's doing he really believes he's making the biggest and best game ever made biggest maybe Best, it's not a game until it's released, so it's not. It's just not a game. It doesn't exist. Well, it's a very beautiful speaking idea. Speaking of crowdfunding um, <laughs> campaigns that you probably don't want to fail, Hidetaka yeah. Suhiro, also known as Swery, has announced a new yep. game from his studio White Owl, developed alongside Arc System Works. The game is titled The Missing and will be coming out this year. However, in addition, Swery also announced that he will be relaunching the crowdfunding campaign for The Good Life, his Cat People RPG, which failed on FIG yes. in October of last year. And I will pay for it again. Oh, well, consider you probably weren't charged the first time because... It, no, I wasn't, of course. The FIG campaign failed. Better luck next time, sir. Uh, so, Swahiro, uh, two new games, potentially. This uh, makes me extremely happy. I will invest in The Good Life. Hopefully this time they will take my money. Um, as for the the missing, you threw me the link. I got extremely excited, but haven't opened it and then forgot because I was swamped. So please, Sean, tell the listeners and myself, what is the missing? Just to be completely uh, clear here, you are asking me to describe a sweary game. Yes, yes, please, please. Are you, yes, please, are please. you sure? Please, yes, please. Because yes, please, I'm not please, sure. Yes, please, 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 <laughs> okay. yes, please. Well... Essentially, not too many details. You know, Swery did not provide a whole lot of explanation. Uh, the video, the YouTube video that announces it has him sitting with a bunch of cactus and, uh, a lot of monkey dolls for some reason. I'm not reading too much into that. It's Swery. I don't know. Uh, and what he said was, uh, and I quote, the title, The Missing, has many meanings. A missing person, someone who's lost, or even something lost. Now, personally, speaking for myself, that is all kind of the same thing, but whatever. Swery also says, uh, maybe it's your loved one, or a place you belong. Do you ever feel lost in your everyday life? The missing is for someone like you. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, I'm not playing this game. I'm just making that clear. Swery's not for me, and I'm okay with that. But, you know, um... 
he's clearly trying to play that Kojima game, right? But I don't know if this... This might be a little too vague. Yeah, the, the difference is that uh, Kojima like takes himself extremely seriously and swell he knows he's a clown. Yeah. So... So, you know, the the title apparently has many meanings, all of which are the same. But I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it could be someone who's lost, or it could be a lost object, Boris. It could be one of two very yeah. different things. Or maybe someone you love. Or maybe a thing that you don't know where it is. Maybe that. That might also yeah. be it. So, um, yeah. Now, there, the only note of interest is that Arc System Works, which is working with Swery on this... Uh, is actually, its reputation is almost exclusively built on fighting games. Uh, they're the company behind Guilty Gear, Blaze Blue, oh. and uh, uh, just came out now Dragon Ball Fighter Z. So not just fighting games, but actually very good fighting games. Okay. So they say. Uh, so that does seem like a strange combination. The fact that they're developing, you know, that they're working on this together. Are they developing or publishing? Uh, the way that Swery described it is that The Missing is being developed in-house with uh, White Owl. That's his company, his new company. Um, but that he is working with Arc System Works. I'm not sure if that means that they're publishing or if they're also involved in the development. Again, Swery, not big this, on details. Yeah, this would be very interesting. I'm very curious to see what comes out of it. Yeah. I guess I'm kind of morbidly curious. Like, well, you'll tell me how it turns out, I'm sure. I will, I will. Yeah. Speaking of uh, developers, by the way, and publisher news, uh, THQ Nordic has purchased yes. publisher Koch... I'm not reading that right. Koch Media. Uh, <laughs> whoops. Uh, well, actually kind of fitting given the subject because this uh, company includes Deep Silver, who are the IP holders for Saints Row, Metro, and Dead Island. Now, apparently, what analysts have been saying is that it looks like THQ Nordic is trying to rebuild itself to match THQ. Because what's happening is they have two major releases ahead in Darksiders 3, which I don't care about, and Biomutant, which I care a lot about. Um, And they are also now officially going to publish... Whatever it is that Volition is currently working on, we don't know what it is, but we know there is something that they're developing. And THQ Nordic will be releasing that as well. So, Boris, hopes, expectations, what are we thinking here? Everyone's thinking it, I'm just saying it, Saints Row 5 is a possible thing. Uh, if if they work with Volition and they now have the Saints, uh, the Saints Row lights... And beyond that, the Metro series are cool. I don't really care who, care who publishes them. Like, THQ Nordic does it. It at least means uh, that it's going to be stable. Uh, I am pretty pretty excited about Metro Exodus, I think, the new game is called. I think or, so, yeah. I think I think Exodus. Um, I played the first one, didn't finish it, but I love the shit out of the first one. Haven't played the second. Um... But I think I'll just jump right into Exodus uh, directly when it comes out. It looks amazing, and I love this world. I love the premise. I love uh, I love the fact that it's a Russian game, a weak spot for me, like, as you know. Of course. Uh, Eastern European games in general. 
Um, like I remember what I loved about the first Metro is just uh, walking through the tunnels of Moscow, which I actually know. So it was really cool. Mm-hmm. But I digress. Uh, so, yeah, I just... Basically, I don't know how to treat THQ Nordic yet. Um, ever since they were announced, I was like, yeah, THQ died and it was sad. It's not like THQ is back now. Like, I, I'm sh- I'm not sure. Maybe they are. I, I actually say. didn't care enough to, to read about it. Like, are the people behind THQ Nordic the same people behind THQ? I don't know. I am sort of excited for the Darksiders uh, series to be back because many people love this series and I do plan to dive into 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe I'll be happy to play 3 when it comes out. Could be. I don't know. I, I don't know. I just, I'm like, sure, there's like uh, a, a friend of the show, uh, wasn't on the show ever, but we both know him very well, a guy named uh, Nimrod. He, like, I remember he he really, like, mourned THQ because mm. for him, the death of THQ was, like, the death of mid-tier developers. Yeah. And we really had this time when you had very little, if none, mid-tier developers. You had indie and you had the big AAA companies who either bought or closed or bought and closed <coughs> EA, uh, the, the mid-tier ones. So THQ Nordic... I forgot, it's a subsidiary of someone, I forgot who, but they are a sort of mid-tier developer. Now, Paradox, by being the biggest indie company, they sort of also became this mid-tier publisher, right, like THQ was. So, we see, like, with THQ Nordic Nordic and Paradox, and maybe some others I can't remember right now, like, off the top of my head, we do see the return of those mid-tier publishers which are not as weak as the indie, but also not as powerful as the AAAs, which is a good yeah. thing. Um, so, yeah, I'm happy, I'm happy about that, I'd say. Yeah, what's significant to me is that it does seem like a multilateral move on THQ Nordic's part, because on the one hand, by acquiring Deep Silver, this has given them access to three relatively popular franchises, right? These are not, you know, Saints Row is Saints Row and Metro is Metro, these and even Dead Island, I guess I'd give it to it. You know, these are games that people know. At the same time, they're also putting out new IP like Biomutant, which no one has ever seen before. It looks like Rocket Raccoon on steroids. I mean, everybody's going to be into that. Um, yeah. So they seem to be simultaneously experimenting with new properties while reviving, possibly reviving old franchises. Um, and that is an interesting move for a mid-tier publisher to take. Usually, like, on that level, you either want to make a name for yourself by doing completely, you know, games that reflect your studio's perspective and unique design traits, or you just want to be, like, uh, uh, dead or alive number 50, whatever. Yeah. So, it's interesting to see where they're going with that. They could shape up to be a, a major contender if they're continuing to take on more and more people from THQ. Hopefully not the people yeah. who tanked them. Then they can stay mm, out. Well, yeah, well, they sort of tanked because that's how the industry was, you know? Like, the 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 final games of THQ were all good games. I think that was the big tragedy. Like, Saints Row 4, uh, Space Marine, 
um, what else was there? I think Dawn of War 2. Um, those were good games. They just, like, didn't sell enough. Mm. When a bad company dies, nobody cares. Most, uh, ah, yeah, like, again, Darksiders 2. People loved Darksiders 2 a lot. But all these good titles weren't enough to hold it afloat. And I just I just checked on it. They are a subsidiary of Nordic Games, uh, so so yeah, it's just uh, oof. Uh, so so now it's like a <laughs> subsidiary of a subsidiary of a subsidiary. No, no, but but they are like they're not a subsidiary of like not a Zenimax or like or any. I should hope not. They 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 are they are legit a mid tier company. So so yeah. Okay. So cool. So I'm cool about them acquiring stuff, just like Paradox recently acquired the Age of Wonders guys, right? Like, yeah, we see, we see those the mid tier ones growing. I I like that. I like them to grow a little. Yeah, I like them to become like. I think we we already described that in the past. I called it like the old school triple A's, like how the triple A's were before the term term triple A existed. Like we used to love Ubisoft, right? There were this amazing fresh breath into the world of gaming, like this French company putting out those beautiful, magnificent sure. games like Rayman and Beyond Good and Evil and Assassin's Creed was this great innovation. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I want these, like the guys that can make big budget games like Darksiders, but also not, not explode with uh, five games a year. Yeah. Five blockbusters a year, so yeah. Speaking of explosions, by the way, development. Oh, you have a lot of news. <laughs> I do. This is actually the last item, I promise. But uh, no, the, I, I have nothing against it. It's just <laughs> I, I, I remembered we had two, and so we boom. have a we have a job to keep our listeners informed. But um, there yes. have been developments in the loot box uh, saga, uh, oh, Senator. Yes. All right. So Senator Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire recently stepped in uh, and sort of accelerated the process that's been going on for a while now about loot boxes and gambling mechanics in video games. Unfortunately, uh, Senator Hassan's course of action was to ask the ESRB to reconsider its position, uh, which is like asking the NRA to reconsider gun control after a school shooting. I don't know why you would even bother. Um Somewhat predictably, the ESRB responded with, eh, no, we're not going to do that. Which, see, <laughs> seeing as how Activision apparently made $4 billion off microtransactions in 2017, this perhaps should come as no surprise. But it does look that the story is only going to get bigger. I will dance on EA's grave. I will film myself dancing on EA's grave if this actually does bring them down. But there is one thing that bothers me about this whole situation. As pro-consumer as it is for people to now be, you know, explicitly against loot boxes and to start drafting legislation against it and, and all of this, I'm a little bit bothered by the fact that the slogan that is primarily being used to push this cause is... You have to imagine what I'm about to say in all capital letters. Think about the children. And the the reason that this might sound weird, I don't know if this makes any sense. I'm, I'm relying on your feedback for that. But I have a problem with the slogan that was originally used 
to marginalize and stigmatize video game players in general, now being the most effective pro-consumer weapon we have against scummy, exploitative practices from companies like EA and Activision. It's like we're using the enemy's weapons and I don't like it. Yeah, I, I, I feel that. Also, um, have you watched the recent um, the extra credits episodes on the matter? They made a second one and a third one is on the way on the matter of loot boxes. Full disclosure, I usually don't watch them. Not anything against oh, them, I'm just not into really? it. Really? Yeah. Uh, I'm surprised, but uh, okay, no, we have full right, of course. What did they say? Uh, they're not, they're not, uh, they are not a Bible, but I do appreciate them a lot and like their opinions. What did they say? Uh, they actually advocate loot boxes and advocate them strongly with a very powerful caveat. They completely agree that the way that most publishers, uh, specifically EA and Warner, are... Uh, have implemented uh, loot boxes in the past year is bad, like is anti-consumer, but uh, like misusing the system doesn't make the system itself bad. And as a person who likes games and likes to see more games made, meaning many people need to get paid, and that's the the best way to pay them. Like I am all for it because. I... The thing that happened... Aye, aye, aye. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Look, no, cause, cause see what happened. Okay. Uh, and we have only ourselves to blame, or thank, depending on your situation. The industry has been looking for ways to make games profitable. And do remember, we just talked about, like, THQ crashing, even though all of its games were criti- critically acclaimed. It, it crashed. So... It's a problem. Like, making money out of games isn't trivial. And um, the industry tried a lot of different methods. The only method that seemed consistently working, that we, the players, consistently agreed to, was the loot boxes. And uh, this is why in 2017 it exploded this way, in a very ugly way, because Warner NEA like realize they realized that this is the way to go and they did it shamelessly. Blizzard realized it like two years before and really no outrage against like I paid and keep paying a lot of money for Hearthstone. Which is fine. I, I don't see Hearthstone as exploitative in any way. I don't pay for um the boxes in Overwatch, but I get why people do that. Like, fine, you want your trinkets. Um, this, and as extra credits put it, I agree, this actually makes the game cheaper, because a few people are willing to pay that sum, and others don't. Now, it is true that there is a tendency uh, for some people to gratify themselves by buying the loot boxes, which is because the loot boxes are made extremely fun to open. And this is something that all the companies do. And this is basically the only thing that extra credits really disagree with. Like, you shouldn't make the process of buying and opening the loot crates so gratifying by itself. Because this does work on slot machine uh, logic. On the same, like, on the same chemicals in your brain that work when you open a slot machine. 
saying that a loot box is not a bad thing like opening a pack of cards in hearthstone is not a bad thing or like specifically in hearthstone ccgs uh, are like are basically where the model started because another thing they brought magic the gathering like before the age of video game microtransactions magic the gathering was consistently the best selling game in any medium like the best like the game that could and it's still even though it has the huge competition from Hearthstone video games magic the gathering still exists it's still still sustainable thanks to that so you do need a model like a sustainable model for media games to for video games to generate income otherwise they just can't sustain themselves and this works and this is our fault we agreed to no. that I ooh, I am completely gonna disagree with like everything. Um, okay. N- like, not I'm not gonna go ballistic or anything, but I'm saying like, here's the thing. First of all, nobody on the fan side went to EA and said, "Could you please add loot boxes to games?" Right. This was a decision that started with those companies. Secondly, to compare it to CCGs is deeply problematic because you're not paying $60 for some kind of board that you then put the cards on. You buy the cards. Your only investment in an actual game is the cards. To the best of my knowledge, Overwatch still costs $40 like even before you get into the boxes just to play the game. You're paying $40. Right. Or is it subscription-based now? But but No. You you pay forty dollars and okay. then it's all, all right. they're free. The boxes are cosmetic. Yeah. They're pure cosmetic. Unlike oh, well, th- unlike there's... in an EA game or a Warner game where it affects the gameplay. Okay. Um Well he, so here's the other element of that, right? So the the argument of it's just cosmetic is a whole other box of problems that that's a loot box we're not gonna open today. But okay. um the issue Why not? Well, it's a whole thing, right? Like cosmetics, the psychology of cosmetics, how it affects people. Let's not even get into that. It's a, it's a Michigas, as uh, uh, Fran Fine would say. But um, the larger issue, I think, is that these gambling mechanics, first of all, we know that the AAA companies are not content to just have this system in place, that they are constantly looking for ways to make it more exploitative, to make it more compelling, to draw more people in. This we know for a fact. We know that Activision trademarked certain systems that tamper with matchmaking to make you lose to people who have better gear than you do. And then you're going to go and buy it, right? Uh, Because who wants to lose all the time? And that kind of manipulation is an issue that, from my perspective, you can't equivocate on. Because to say loot boxes are okay, but the way they do it is not okay, these companies are never going to choose the ethical way and potentially make less money. That doesn't... Because they don't. But, because but if, see how if it there was them. a way... No, no. If, see how it hurt them, how these practices... How did it hurt terribly them? Terribly healthy, eh? EA made a statement to its investors claiming that uh, turning microtransactions off in Battlefront 2 did not affect the uh, profit of the game at all. It is a known fact, right? It is something that they have 
stated in no uncertain terms that the microtransactions are additional profit on top of what they're already making in the game. And the reason that, you know, my objection to the extra credit line specifically is their whole defense of the loot box rests on the assumption that games are super expensive to make, to which I say, fucking prove it. We talk about EA's expenses as if anybody has any idea how much money they're spending for real. Theoretically, there probably is a way to do it right. They're not going to do it, though. They never have. They never will. When did EA ever choose the higher road in doing anything? If they were capable of that, they wouldn't have gotten to the point where they're so reviled. Right? There's a, there is mm-hmm. something about the AAA mentality that allows them to think that they can do whatever the fuck they want and there's never going to be a backlash. Now there's a backlash, sure. But, you know, if this had just... If Battlefront 2 had just been, like, people bitching at them on Reddit, they would not have cared. Battlefront 3 would have had loot boxes, too. They wouldn't have given a shit. Dragon Age 4 is probably going to have loot boxes. Like, let's be real here, you know? Ubisoft recently went on on record as saying that they are interested in shifting their publishing model from games to like, what did they call it? Live service. What is that? That's microtransactions, right? What are, what are perpetual games with live MMORPGs and stuff like that? Right? So here's a company that's saying, you know, well, yes, we are known for Rayman, Prince of Persia, Assassin's Creed, Beyond Good and Evil. Well, we ain't doing that shit anymore. I don't know. You know, these are, are companies that they, they have never done right by their players. And now the only thing that seems to be giving them pause is the fact that all of a sudden politicians are getting into it. And it grosses me out because it's like fucking politicians, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's who we needed to turn to for salvation in the year of the orange bastard, especially. We need Republicans to legislate this? Jesus. Those are the companies that I have learned to be wary of. And you know what? We have so many examples of companies in the mid-tier and in the indie tier that don't do this kind of thing. And they manage just fine, right? Nobody will go to, like, start a crusade against Devolver Digital for unethical sales practices or whatever. They don't do this kind of shit. Yeah, but you can just play, like, yeah, maybe you can just play the Vol Digital games. I want a big, a big AAA title hey, once in a while. I, I to, want an Assassin's Creed. You to know? be clear, I, I want like a Doom. I want stuff like that. I, uh, to be completely clear, I'm not judging anybody who goes out and buys Shadow of Mordor or, or whatever. Right? You know, have a blast. If that works for you, if that scratches the itch that you have when you go to video games, more power to you. I'm not, you know, I'm not judging. All I'm saying is, you know, those top tier companies are the ones that are always going to try and fuck us over. And it's so telling that like, you know, when they talk about, oh, this is why like extra credits pissed me off with that video because it's like, you're making the argument that we need loot boxes because games are super expensive to make. Am I wrong not, in assuming... Not a new argument. Not a new argument, but am I wrong in assuming that indie and mid-tier companies would need that money more and yet they don't do this? No, they wouldn't need it more. Their games are significantly less expensive. 
But they, in order to survive, they need money just like EA and, and Ubisoft do, right? Is Ninja Theory going to start putting loot boxes in Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice? I doubt it. You open the box and it's going to be like, Senua, focus. No, that's not going to happen, right? These are companies that do not do this sort of thing, even though because of their size and because they don't have access to the kind of marketing machine that someone like WB does, right? Like Warner Brothers do not have problems marketing their games. They've got platforms, they've got IPs, they have everything that they need. They're the ones doing loot boxes when someone like, I don't know, I mean, fucking Nintendo doesn't do loot boxes. Like, you have all of these companies who supposedly, like, they would love to get a bigger piece of the pie. I would have been ecstatic for someone like Obsidian to have, like, Obsidian should have more money. I've said that a lot, you know. I don't see Obsidian putting loot boxes and stuff. I don't see Paradox running around and saying, you know, we are from now on, we're going to be doing sales as a service. We want to okay, serve now, you. Now, 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 let's be real for a moment. If suddenly, if, if now Paradox goes out and says, we're going to do loot boxes, do you think it will be received in any possible way well for them? I think that now, it, like in this particular point, right, February 2018, that term loot boxes has been poisoned, right? I do think that that term now has connotations of exploitation, of thinking of players, yeah. right? Whales, but, dolphins, fish, right? All of that language. Uh, yeah. That's attached right to now it. it's completely unobjective. How could it be? Like, it, there's no way that it could be objective when all of this garbage has been attached to it by those companies. Now, the flip side of that is if Clay, for example, right? Clay Entertainment says, okay... We are now putting out um, a string of DLCs for Don't Starve. Uh, each of them will be $2.99, but the thing is the DLC will add weapons. And, you know, like phrasing it in such a way that it is not microtransactions, but some other term. I feel like people would be more inclined to do that because these companies have not tried to exploit them. Even though they're not high up on the total. But they do put out DLCs. All of these companies put out DLCs. Sure. DLCs. Of course, but you don't see people screaming at them. Because these, because these DLCs are not... First of all, the DLCs are not randomized, right? There's an element right. of when you pay for something, you know what you're getting. Yeah, ten years ago, everyone hated DLCs. Uh, I don't know if as vehemently as we hate loot boxes now, it's hard to compare, the times and the media are different. Everyone hated DLCs, now everyone is doing DLCs, and everybody hates loot boxes. So, mm-hmm. I think that it's completely ostensible that three years from now, or five years from now, Clay and Paradox, Paradox would be the first ones, uh, but like, yeah, and even Clay and even Devolver would start using I disagree. In some way or another. Okay, so I disagree, and it, it has to do with, like, the nature of the thing. You're right. Like, there was a point when everyone was complaining about DLCs, but I'll remind you that usually the complaints that people had with DLCs as they were back then, like fucking horse armor and all that shit, yeah. was that there was a feeling that with a lot of these DLCs, they were content that 
belonged in the game and were then cut out in order to be resold. I think, like, you remember with Mass Effect 3, this was a big thing, right? Where yeah. a character who was in the game, all the content had already been recorded at launch, it was all already there. They just took the character, cut him out, and then sold him as a pre-order or something, or as DLC. That was a situation where people felt that they were paying additional money for content that was meant to be included in the game itself. Whereas when you think about it, a DLC like Enemy Within, right, for XCOM, or a DLC along the lines of, let me think of like something, oh, you know, Hong Kong, uh, Dragonfall for Shadowfall Returns, for Shadowrun Returns, right? DLC on that level, in the... That's just a word that in the old days would have been expansion pack, right? Diablo 2, Lord of Destruction, Baldur's Gate 2, Throne of Ball, all of that shit, right? Expansion packs were perceived differently because it was content that was not from the original game. Yeah. It was stuff that, you know, they got the money from the main sales. They sat down afterwards and they're like, how can we add like a new chapter to this game? And they did it. The reason that I don't think, I, I, I think there is a dividing line between all of that stuff, right? Expansion packs, DLCs, all of that stuff. Bon- pre-order weapons, bonuses. Bioware were big on that back in the day. Yep. The difference with loot boxes, though, is that all of that shit before loot boxes, you knew what you were buying. And I feel like it might be too much of a leap for someone lo- like Obsidian to say, you know... um in-game currency now, you have to pay us an additional $6, maybe you'll get the thing you're looking for, there's like a 60% chance that you won't, and the only way you can is if you pay again, and again, and again, it's like you said, slot machine, right? That is exactly what it is. A slot machine promises you nothing. That is a model that I do not think will be acceptable for much longer. You know, again... Activision made $4 billion off microtransactions in 2017. So clearly my voodoo dolls are not working. But, you know, hope springs eternal. This is, this is like in no uncertain terms, players getting fucked over. And their tolerance for that can be as high as, as they want it to be. Again, I'm not telling people what to do with their money. All I'm saying is, you know, these companies do not respect you. And if they can figure out a way to get the money that you're not spending on them, you better believe they fucking will. Okay. And if legislation is the only thing that will stop them, then bring on the... I can't believe I'm saying this. Bring on the Republicans. Blech. I feel unclean, Boris. That's all for today's news. Brought to you whenever we feel like it. Uh, for News of Present Simple, I'm Sean. I'm Bolis. Wishing you all happy monster hunting.